0: Today's sermon comes from Matthew 2, verses 13 through 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what, the, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene.
1: Early on in our trip out west during sabbatical, uh, we stayed in a a hotel in San Diego. And through a unique set of circumstances— I was able to share the gospel with a young man, probably in his late 20s. And here's what happened I was down at the front desk in the early morning hours, and this man was at the front desk, clearly having a pretty intense conversation with the front desk manager. And because of loud noise, he had been unable to sleep the night before. And so he was demanding that his room be comped by the front desk manager, who was unable to do it, had to call the manager of the hotel, and and the, the manager supposedly was coming in because this couldn't be worked out. Anyway, so I engaged with him, and he began to share some. His grandfather had died a week earlier. His sister had committed suicide three years earlier. And he said he had no desire to be in San Diego, to be working this job because he was from New Jersey. As I started to share the gospel, he quickly said, I know you're bringing religion into this, but let me just be clear. I will be happy when my room gets calm. I challenged him on that. Kindly, I challenged him that a favorable circumstance such as his room being comped wouldn't get rid of his anger, wouldn't get rid of the pain. But isn't that where we often go in a season of pain, in a season of weeping? We may not ask for our room to be comped, but we ask for something To happen, some change in situation or circumstance that will get rid of the pain or dry up the tears or end the season of weeping. At the center of this passage is a prophecy that's about weeping. And it's evident why there is weeping. Children are being killed. And we're going to get into that. But if ultimately a change in circumstance or a change in situation doesn't sustain us through seasons of weeping, then what does? In your own season of weeping right now, whatever it may be, your own crisis, what sustains you through that season of weeping. First, God's sovereignty. What we have going on here is a furious and evil king who is producing tremendous chaos amongst God's people. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, They were supposed to come back and tell him where baby Jesus was. Herod became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Jesus is probably anywhere from six months to 20 months old at this point. And so Herod covers all his bases and says anyone, two or younger, any male child is going to be killed. Now, Bethlehem was a smaller town. So we're probably talking about here the killing of maybe 15 to 20 male children in Bethlehem. Because of this, verse 13 tells us that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and said, Joseph, take Mary and Jesus and flee. Go to Egypt to avoid King Herod. And then after Herod dies, you can come back. Then after Herod dies in verse 19, Joseph begins to return to the land of Israel with Mary and Jesus, but then becomes scared when he realizes that Herod's son, Archelaus, is in power. And Archelaus was just as dangerous and just as ruthless as his father. And so in another dream... Joseph is warned to go to Nazareth. Now, I want you to pause and feel and experience what is happening here. Mary and Joseph and their newborn baby Jesus have been exiled to Egypt. They have been removed from their home removed from their community that they knew so well and sent off into Egypt and then exiled once again to Nazareth. Then you have those that were living in Bethlehem, the Jewish families in Bethlehem that didn't leave. Evil is wreaking havoc at this point on God's people. Imagine those Jewish families in Bethlehem that lost a child because of evil King Herod and what he had done, the grief, the fear, the danger that they were experiencing. God's community is being fractured and pulled apart, devastating. And then imagine what it would be like to be Mary and Joseph. Now, God sovereignly protected his Messiah, his son, Jesus, but Mary and Joseph had to pick up in the middle of the night and flee at least 75 miles into Egypt. Now, we go, well, you just jump in the car 60 miles an hour, we're there an hour later. That wasn't the case, back then. Put yourself in Mary and Joseph's shoes. Those of you that have a newborn or you've have children and you know what it was like to have a newborn, what it's like to pack for a trip. Do I have enough diapers? Do I have enough wipes? Do I have enough formula? Do I have the special binky so my child's going to sleep? You know what it's like to pack for a trip. Mary and Joseph had to get up in the middle of the night and flee over 75 miles to Egypt. I don't want you to gloss over the situation at hand. You have Jewish families in Bethlehem that have experienced horrific tragedy, having lost their child. You have Mary and Joseph being exiled, moved out of their community, out of their home. This is utter crisis, utter chaos that has descended on God's people. But here's the question. Why were Joseph, Mary, and Jesus exiled to Egypt and then to Nazareth? As we answer this question, I, Some of you, because of where you're at in the season of life, have to work a little bit to get to feeling what these Jewish families felt or to feel what Mary and Joseph felt in exile. Some of you, because of your season of life, don't have to work hard to get there because you're in a crisis of your own and the season of weeping is real and the filling your your bed with tears at night is real. The question, why were Joseph, Mary, and Jesus exiled in Egypt and Nazareth? Why the crisis? Why the chaos? Well, the obvious answer is because of evil. There was an evil king who wreaked havoc on God's people. But there's a deeper reason that this passage gives. After the angel of the Lord tells Joseph to flee to Egypt, verse 15 tells us why. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. This is a prophecy out of the book of Hosea, chapter 11. We will get to it. But what I want you to see here is that this crisis, this chaos happened to fulfill God's redemptive plan and purpose in history. Again, why were they exiled to Nazareth? Verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Again, this chaos, this crisis happened to fulfill God's redemptive plan and purpose in history. Your crisis, your chaos is not an accident. Your crisis and chaos falls underneath the sovereign hand of God. Psalm chapter two, verses two to three. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The history of the church and the history of God's people is strewn with blood and tears. The rage of the devil, the rage of man, has been unleashed on God's people, unleashed on his church throughout history. But that's not where Psalm 2 ends. Verses four to six, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. King Jesus is on his throne. Overseeing history. Moving history exactly according to God's plan and purpose, and that includes your life. The question becomes, is it reasonable to trust God when you don't understand what he's doing? Is it reasonable to trust God when you don't understand what he's doing. I've shared this before, but philosopher Basil Mitchell answers this with a, a really powerful parable. He says Imagine you're in German occupied France during World War II, and you want to join the resistance movement against the Nazis. You're in a local bar one night and a stranger walks up to you and introduces himself as the resistance leader. And he begins to tell you what the duties would be if you were to join this resistance against the Nazis. And he lays it out for you and he helps you to determine his trustworthiness. And he says, you can say no right now and walk away. But if you join know that your life will be at risk and know that you will have to obey commands and obey procedures without ever seeing me face-to-face again. You'll have to trust in the operation, even if you're a little bit lack of understanding with the whys and the wherefores of what's going on. And so as it progresses, you realize that sometimes the resistance leader is doing the obvious. He's helping members of the resistance and you say, thank heavens, he's on our side. But then sometimes the resistance leader is dressed up in a German secret police uniform, arresting members of the resistance and unknown to you, releasing them out of your sight so they can escape the Nazis. And it's not until the war's over that all the secrets are revealed, that the true comrades are vindicated, right? the traitors are exposed, everything makes sense. In commenting on this parable, Oz Guinness says this, evil is not a problem because God is too small, though doing his best. But because God is so great, that we cannot be expected to know what he is doing. In your crisis, do you trust God? Do you trust him even if you can't understand exactly what he's doing? What sustains you through seasons of weeping? First is God's sovereignty. But it doesn't stop there. Second, because of his unrelenting love for you, his unrelenting love. In the midst of this crisis, this chaos, this tragedy of Herod's rampage, it was horror. For God's people. Two Old Testament prophecies are quoted. And it's the context of these prophecies that delivers a very powerful message. The first prophecy is verse 15. Out of Egypt, I called my son. This is a prophecy from Hosea chapter 11, verse one. When Israel was a child I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, out of Egypt is referring to the Exodus. There are very strong parallels between the Exodus and between what's happening here in Matthew chapter two. Just as Pharaoh was trying to destroy the Israelites, God's people, so here, Herod is trying to destroy Christ. That's the connection between these two events, the remainder of Hosea chapter 11, after God's people are rescued out of Egypt, goes on to describe their unfaithfulness, to describe their sin. The entire book of Hosea is a metaphor of the relationship between Israel or the church, you and me, and God. Hosea was a man who married a woman named Gomer. He married her, but Gomer very quickly became unfaithful. She became a wife of whoredom. She had other lovers. She conceived children in adultery. But instead of rejecting her, Hosea, as husband, loved her and ended up buying her back out of her awful slavery, mercifully restoring her to a position of honor. The love of a husband towards an unfaithful wife is a metaphor of God's unconditional, unrelenting love towards his people, towards you, towards me, But what does this unconditional and unrelenting love of God look like? This brings us to the second prophecy in verse 18. It's going to answer this question. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is a prophecy from Jeremiah 31:15. Rachel was the wife of Jacob and the mother of Joseph and Benjamin who became two of the tribes of Israel. Rachel was most likely buried in Ramah. That's why this shows up in this prophecy. And she was symbolically thought of as the mother of the nation of Israel. And so what you have here is Rachel weeping from her tomb, so to speak, over God's children, the Israelites who were being sent into exile. She was weeping over her children who would be no more because of exile. And those tears and that weeping in Jeremiah 31, 15 climax here in Matthew 2 as now the mothers of Bethlehem are weeping because their children are no more, because Herod has killed them. But this prophecy is in here not to signal downcast weeping. It acknowledges the weeping, but this whole passage is lifting towards hope. In fact, in Jeremiah 31, two chapters later in verse 17, the Lord declares there is hope for your future and your children shall come back to their own country. And then by the end of Jeremiah 31, God is announcing his new covenant, which concludes with, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The message here is that the exile is over. The heir to David's throne has come. The true son of God has arrived. Jesus is the true Israelite. Out of Egypt, I called my son, referring to the nation of Israel, but also pointing forward to the true Israelite Jesus, who was perfectly faithful, unlike Israel, unlike us. Jesus, the true Israelite who was faithful, who took on our unfaithfulness at the cross and then rose from the dead to secure our salvation. The unrelenting and unconditional love of God for you looks like God taking it upon himself at great cost to himself to buy you out of exile, out of slavery by the precious blood of Jesus Christ so that you could be with him. If you are in a place or you have ever been in a place where you question God's love, I mean, intellectually, you may say, I know God loves me, but I'm talking about a functional heart level If you've ever been in that place, which oftentimes crisis brings that, when there is intense crisis, you can begin to question, does God really love me? Because it doesn't feel like it. Listen to a couple of these verses. Deuteronomy 32, 9 to 10. But the Lord's portion is his people. That word portion, think inheritance. The Lord's inheritance, is his people, you, me. Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land, in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. What a picture of God's love for his children. Ezekiel 16, 8 When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness, your shame. I covered it. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. God loves you deeply because he loves his children deeply. Jean Vanier was a Christian leader who founded L'Arche Communities, which were these communities that, that basically ministered to people with severe physical and, and, and mental disabilities. And he tells the story Of this 76 year old woman named Francoise. She went by Mamie. She was 76. She was blind, bedridden, and incontinent. She could not feed or dress herself, she was unable to communicate through words. And yet, the staff at this specific large community loved Mamie. They took care of her just like Christ would. This visitor showed up at the community and was meeting with the director and and, and getting kind of a tour of the place. And this visitor watched Mamie struggle, watched her blind and weak and unable to dress herself and feed herself and unable to communicate with words. And, and offhandedly, this visitor asked the director, what's the point of keeping her alive? And this director looked at her and said, well, madam, because I love her. That's why. This 76-year-old woman, in her blindness, in her weakness, unable to dress herself, feed herself, is an accurate picture of you and me in our spiritual condition. And yet God loves us right in the midst of our absolute sin and brokenness. Your chaos, your crisis that is producing tears and weeping is a result of sin. It's a result of sin and brokenness. Maybe your sin It may be somebody else's sin against you. Maybe it's some combination of both. Your crisis is not evidence that God has abandoned you or that he is disappointed with you. Your crisis is evidence of God's unrelenting love and passion over you. Hebrews 12.6 says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Now, it's unfortunate in our culture that that word discipline is a a negative word. Typically, it's usually defined as punishment or something like that. But discipline is, is, is training. It's change, it's transformation. Hebrews 12:7 says to endure hardship, crisis, chaos as discipline. The greatest picture, or a, a beautiful picture of discipline, biblically, is a potter's wheel. And the potter who is taking this lump of clay on the potter's wheel, spinning it, pressing it, forming it, shaping it into something beautiful. Your crisis is the tool that God is using sovereignly to shape you, to transform you. And it's all done out of love. His deep, unrelenting love for you, apple of his eye, because you're mine. That's why he does this. What sustains you through seasons of weeping? God's sovereignty. It's interesting. If you just stop there, if you say in your crisis, well, God's sovereign, that's true. But you can also then cast him as just a removed, harsh, sovereign king. That's why his unrelenting love with his sovereignty is so beautiful, but it doesn't stop there. What sustains you through seasons of weeping? His sovereignty is unrelenting love, but finally, his identification. His identification. The last prophecy that gets quoted is in verse 23 he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, that is not a direct quote from the Old Testament. In fact, you won't find that in the Old Testament. So you say, well, what's going on there? What did the Old Testament prophets say that Matthew would write that? Well, it's all wrapped up in the the term Nazareth or the city Nazareth or Nazarene. Nazareth was not a prestigious city, okay? It was actually everything but a prestigious city. In fact, in John chapter one, when Nathanael learns that Jesus is from Nazareth, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? On top of that, in the book of Acts, when the first Christians were called Nazarenes, that was an expression that was meant to hurt. That was an expression that was meant to hurt. Had Jesus been known as Jesus of Bethlehem, that would have had overtones of majesty, kingship. That was, that was King David's birthplace, right? That would have had overtones of majesty. And, but Jesus of Nazareth, that has overtones of contempt and hatred. What Matthew is doing here in this phrase is summarizing what the Old Testament prophets had been saying the Messiah, Jesus, would be, and that is that he would be despised and that he would be hated. Who did Jesus regularly identify with in the Gospels? Who did he most regularly identify with In the gospels. It was those who had experienced shame in three areas nakedness, filthiness, and isolation. Let's start with nakedness. In John chapter eight, the scribes and Pharisees bring a woman who had been caught in adultery before Jesus. She had been caught in the act of adultery, meaning now she's ripped out in the public square in front of Jesus, maybe with a cloth around her, we don't know, but she was naked in the sense that she was vulnerable. She had been exposed in her sin. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the crowd says, she needs to be stoned to death according to the law of Moses, and Jesus said, Those of you who have not sinned, pick up a stone and throw it at her. And nobody threw a stone. And Jesus said to her, Have they condemned you? She said, No. And he said, Neither do I condemn you. Jesus identified with the naked, the vulnerable. But he also identified with the filthy. In Luke chapter 19, it records the story of Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus, the tax collector, chief tax collector. Zacchaeus was a, he was a cheat. He was a liar. He was a traitor. He was deceptive. He was hated. And Jesus sees him up in the tree and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house today. Scribes and the Pharisees didn't, I mean, they didn't know what to do with this made him so angry that Jesus would identify with a traitor and a cheat and a liar. And then when he gets to Zacchaeus' house, he proclaims salvation has come to this house today. Jesus identified with the filthy, but he also identified with the isolated. He healed lepers. It wasn't just that he healed them how he healed lepers. He put his hand on them. He touched them. When they were untouchables in society, they were in leper colonies. They were outcasts. Jesus identifies with your shame, your nakedness, your vulnerability, your filthiness, your isolation. Jesus was actually stripped naked on our behalf. He took our nakedness. He took our vulnerability. Jesus was defiled, made filthy when the sins of the world were placed on him and he was defiled, made filthy literally. And Jesus was crucified outside the camp. In isolation. Jesus took on your nakedness so that you could be clothed with robes of righteousness. Jesus took on your filth so that you could be washed clean. And Jesus was crucified outside the camp in isolation so that you could be adopted into the family. Jesus fully identifies with you in the midst of your crisis, whatever that is. He has experienced your shame. Pastor Lee Strobel tells this story. Shortly after the Korean War, a Korean woman had an affair with an American soldier. She got pregnant. The American soldier went back to the States and she never heard from him again. And so she was Pregnant with this girl, she gave birth to this little girl, but this little girl looked different than the other Korean children. Her little girl had light color and curly hair. And in the Korean culture, children of mixed race are mocked and shamed and outcast. And that's why a lot of the women would kill their children because they don't want to face that rejection and that shame. But this woman didn't do that. She vowed to raise this little girl the best she could. And she did so for about seven years. And through those years, faced the mockery and the slander and the, the isolation. And finally, the rejection got too much that she did the unthinkable. She abandoned her seven-year-old girl to the streets. And this girl lived on the streets for about two years, experiencing the unthinkable of shame and rejection and hurt and slander and mockery. Finally, when she turned nine, she landed in an orphanage. And one day in this orphanage that all the kids were, it was announced that there was an American couple coming to adopt a little baby boy. And so this nine-year-old girl got excited. They all did, wondering who would be this little boy that would be given hope. And so she went to work bathing the little boys and washing them and dressing them up and combing their hair and and getting them ready for the big day, wondering which one was going to be taken into a home and be given hope. And the day came, this couple arrived, and this is what this nine-year-old girl recalled. She said, it was like Goliath had come back to life. I saw the man with his huge hands lift up each and every baby. I knew he loved every one of them as if they were his own. I saw tears running down his face. And I knew if they could, they would have taken the whole lot home with them. He saw me out of the corner of his eye. She says, Now let me tell you. I was nine years old, but I didn't even weigh 30 pounds. I was a scrawny thing. I had worms in my body. I had lice in my hair. I had boils all over me. I was full of scars. I was not a pretty sight. But the man came over to me and he began rattling away something in English. And I looked up at him. Then he took his huge hand and laid it on my face. He was saying, I want this child. This child is for me. Martin Luther says it well. Hmm. God receives none but those who are forsaken. Restores health to none but those who are sick. Gives sight to none but the blind, and life to none but the dead. He has mercy on none but the wretched, and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. Your crisis. that is producing a season of weeping is not an accident. God is sovereign. And your crisis that is producing your season of weeping is not evidence of God abandoning you or moving away from you. It's evidence of God's unrelenting and unconditional and passionate love over you. And your crisis that is producing a season of weeping is not foreign to Jesus. He understands. And he identifies with you in the pain, in the shame, in the crisis. Let's pray. Father, our world is a mess. We don't like to be honest about it. We want to act like things are better than they are. We want to be positive polys. We want to cast a good light on things. We want to cover up what's bad. But this world is an absolute mess. There is evil and darkness and sin everywhere. There are lives in this room that have been scarred by sin. And yet in the midst of the darkness and the sin and the scarring, we praise you that we have hope, that your gospel gives us hope and sustains us when we're filling our bed with tears. We praise you that you're sovereign and that you love us deeply as your children, that you call us the apple of your eye. You say that we are yours. And we praise you that as we walk through the mud, that you're not aloof to it because you put on flesh. And you experienced rejection and betrayal. Jesus, thank you for being stripped naked in our place so that we could be clothed with robes of righteousness. Thank you for taking our filth and our defilement so that we could be washed clean. And thank you for being crucified outside the camp in isolation so that we could be adopted into the family. Fathers, we close now in singing. Oh, would our words, would you help us to feel and to experience and to know the words we're singing and to believe them? in the midst of our crisis and would, would song serve the purpose as it does of lifting our hearts out of the, the mire and into your beautiful kingdom and the hope that we have. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.